Greetings. This is Rob Goldstone, editor of Current Directions and Psychological Science. Today we have with us Greg Wadley, senior lecturer in the School of Computing and Information Systems at University of Melbourne. He is the author, together with Wally Smith, Peter Koval, and James Gross, of a forthcoming article entitled Digital Emotion, Emotion Regulation. Welcome, Greg. Thanks, Rob. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. So to start things off with some basics, what do you mean by emotion regulation? Perhaps giving a couple of everyday examples. Yeah, put very simply, emotion regulation is when you try to change an emotion. Our emotions attune us to, to threats and opportunities and lead us to respond appropriately. But we're not only evaluating situations, we're also evaluating our emotional responses to situations. And sometimes those emotions aren't appropriate. They may not fit in with a certain situation. They might be uh, socially unacceptable. Sometimes they're just really unpleasant. So for a range of reasons, we might decide that an emotion is not right. We don't want to be experiencing that emotion. And so people try to change their emotions. And this is just happening all the time. It's a normal daily occurrence. Great. And so that has been happening for hundreds or thousands of years for humans. But how are digital technologies changing the opportunities and the nature of emotion regulation? Well, we think probably in several ways. So one thing that the digital technologies, especially if you think about smartphones, it's just like the canonical example, the one that excites us the most. Smartphones mm -hmm. bring together a range of tactics that, that have been used in the past for emotion regulation. And they bring them together into one handy device that you've got on you all the time. It's kind of always on and always with. Uh, so, for example, uh, one thing that people do to regulate their emotion is to consume different media, such as listening to music or, or watching uh, TV shows or movies or, or videos, playing games. And in the past, you know, if, if you grew up in the pre-smartphone era, you had to wait until a certain time of day to be in a certain place in order to engage in those kinds of activities. So you might be at school and, and you... you you're in an unpleasant mood and you know that if you could watch TV, that might get you into a, an emotional state that you prefer to be in, but you can't just do that at school. You've got to wait till you get home. And what the smartphone's done then is to make these kinds of media experiences available pretty much anytime and anywhere. If you go to a place where people are, are bored or upset or not happy to, in the situation they're in, you'll, you'll typically find lots of people on their phones Instead of uh, that uh, media consumption experience being something that you might be planning on or, or, or looking forward to or happening later in the day, you might be thinking about it. Uh, with the smartphone, you can start to strategically consume that media any time. So it becomes part of the way that you deal with routine situations. At the same time, the the variety or the quantity of different media experiences is greatly increased. So media services make a 
effectively every piece of music, every television show, every movie that's ever been produced is right there on your phone. So there's this enormous power to fine tune these experiences and make them part of your, your daily life to deal with the situations in which uh, emotion regulation is the appropriate action to take. Great, great. So it seems natural that we use our digital devices to feel better. You know, we play games because they're fun. We peruse Facebook because it makes us feel more connected to our friends. But to my ears, talk of emotion regulation seems like it's making a stronger claim than simply that we do what feels good. It suggests that we may not always do what feels good if something in us detects that we need to feel a different, maybe even negative emotion. So are there cases where people regulate their emotions in other ways than just making ourselves feel good? Uh, yes, definitely. So a lot of emotion regulation is prohedonic, meaning that people just want to feel better, as, as you just said. And that makes sense. And there's a lot of situations, including social situations, work situations, where feeling better is not, doesn't just feel better in a hedonic sense, but, it, but it's the socially acceptable thing to be doing in that context. But there's a range of situations where the right thing to do is to be experiencing an emotion that would be considered unpleasant. So in, in some social and work situations, people will downregulate happiness, for example, to be more competitive, uh, to be more analytical. Sometimes it's the right thing to be, to be doing in a, in a particular conversations. So thinking about the what we're going through at the moment in, in the world with COVID-19, you, you can imagine being in a discussion with someone who's we're like, we're all hurting a little bit, right? Some people are hurting a lot. You want to bring your emotional state into in sync with that person. A, a, a good example of this is in music. So we did a study with uh, students and looking at the kind of digital music they listen to for emotion regulation. And there are some interesting examples of students, for example, playing very aggressive, angry kind of music, a very energizing music, which isn't necessarily a pleasant emotional experience, but they're doing that for particular reasons. So we had one student saying that when, when they leave the campus and they're walking home alone at night, they wanna, they wanna feel um, more powerful and more, more able to deal with dangerous situations. And so they, they psych themselves up. Uh, sad music and movies can be cathartic or therapeutic or help people grow in a sort of eudaimonic sense. Particular demographic categories are socially conditioned to, to want to experience emotions that fit a self-image or, or expectations around their identity, such as a, a gender identity. Uh, and, and these all uh, translate straightforwardly to the digital realm. So your research crucially involves collaborations between computer scientists and psychologists, and your own background is somewhat uh, uh, eclectic combination of both of those influences. Can you say something about how each of these perspectives and methods informs your research? Yeah, sure. W Wally Smith and I are in a, a subdiscipline of computer science called human-computer interaction, or HCI. Mm -hmm. So we're less 
concerned with the engineering of digital devices and more with how users and, uh, and other stakeholders interact with devices. So studying that interaction, designing for those interactions, understanding those interactions and the impacts that they have. So within HCI, we're very interested in why people adopt particular devices and why they use them when and where they do. We think that the uh, emotion regulation perspective really adds to that. But also there are particular methods that have been developed in HCI, which I think our psychologist colleagues are finding very interesting. So in psychology, there's a concern with trying to take study outside of the lab and try to understand better people's emotional experiences, their emotion regulation experiences uh, in daily life. And this is this is an issue we've we've dealt with in computing research too. Especially, this was driven by the rise of mobile technologies around 10, 15 years ago. So when when our discipline first began, using a digital device meant sitting in an office, and the device was a big box on your desk. Right? That's not very different from a lab. But once digital devices become mobile, then you need a whole different set of techniques. And so in HCI, we have techniques for trying to understand people's user experiences in the wild. That's the phrase that we tend to use. Mm -hmm. There's qualitative kind of strategies like interviewing people, observing mm -hmm. them, uh, getting them to keep diaries, uh, taking uh, usage logs of their devices in conjunction with that. At the same time in computer science, there's heavy usage of uh, sensors. And so Vas Kostikos, the leader of our research group, uh, has done a lot of work instrumenting smartphones. A smart, smartphone can detect a lot about a person, what they're doing, where they are, and even what uh, emotional states they're in. And of course, the smartphone can keep track of how people are using the phone and what kind of apps they're using. Uh, some people in our group are working on how to collect that data and analyze it and see if we can detect instances of emotion regulation in this data as people go throughout their daily lives. Right, great. So given your understanding of the psychology of emotion regulation, what would your recommendations be for designing apps and devices that allow people to more effectively regulate their own emotions? So what advice can psychology offer engineers perhaps? That's a good question. And this, this is going in a, in a few different directions, I think. An activity that's already happening in our discipline is designing digital health interventions for mental health. And I've been involved in, mm -hmm. in a few projects like that. The digital emotion regulation perspective will help technology designers understand how technology use is impacting people's well-being. It's not just a case of whether technology use impacts people emotionally, and that's, that's kind of understood already, but the people might be actively deploying digital technologies in their emotion regulation in daily life. Mm -hmm. right. Another intervention idea that we're working on is if you think about the uh, digital wellness features that the smartphone manu manufacturers have uh, recently built into their platforms. Uh, so Apple have got this, Android have got this. Mm. And these are features that help users track their phone use, set uh, limits on phone use. So the concern there is is with overuse of phones. 
you, you can tell someone exactly how many minutes they've been on Facebook or whatever. And you might decide, mm. well, I'd, I'd rather be spending less time, so I'm going to send a, set a limit on that. But it's mm. not really telling the person why they're using these particular tools. Right. And so we think that if the methods we're developing in our research to, to track people's emotion changes and, and how they how they're influenced by their technologies or how, how people are using technologies to effect these changes in their emotional states. If we can bring that data into a digital wellness feature, then people can say, well, yeah, I'm using these different apps and I can see how much I'm using these apps, but now I know why I'm using these apps. Mm -hmm. So when I'm at work or when I'm commuting or when I'm in these particular emotionally charged situations, I'm using different apps and now I've got a better insight into why I'm doing it. The logical step then would be to help someone come up with better emotion regulation techniques, perhaps teach them better techniques. If you can mm. identify that they're using digital technologies for emotion regulation in such a way as it's becoming dysfunctional for the person. So for a last question, I'd like to ask you the flip side of the last question. So the last question was asking what psychology can do for device builders. Now, I'd like to ask what people who build things can do for psychology. So you were talking about how people use apps in the wild. And so I'm wondering what are the prospects for investigating principles of psychology by looking at those use cases in the wild um, and by analyzing how people naturally use digital technology. What are some of the things that maybe could only be looked at in the wild rather than in the psychologist's laboratory? So it's a remarkable thing, you know, that there's this computer that's always running in, in everyone's pocket and is recording all of these streams of data. So we've seen already that experience sampling has, has shifted to the smartphone and that's a really useful tool. There's a lot of research, including in our research group on, on how best to do experience sampling. So that's been a really powerful tool for, for capturing people's experiences in daily life. But the smartphone can go a lot further than that because the smartphone automatically detects data. So a big problem, there's a number of problems with experience sampling, I think, but, but a big problem with experience sampling is that you're asking the person to self-report and you're interrupting mm -hmm. them. And automatic data collection can solve those sorts of problems as long as you can collect the data that yields the psychological insights that you want. Mm -hmm. So increasingly computing researchers are milking the kind of data that comes from smartphones. So for example, just talking about emotion, there's a number of signs of emotion that can be detected with the phone. Uh, you can detect physiological signs. You can uh, measure the person's movements with different devices, to, uh, look at their facial movements, their bodily movements. And smartphones and wearables in particular make this extremely powerful. You can collect range of different data streams all in parallel for very large numbers of people and along with the 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 behavioral data that you're collecting you're also getting their context data so where are they are they at home are they at work are they with other people what kind of activities are they engaged in what things have, have they been doing that day 
Great. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Greg, for your fascinating perspective on how we regulate our emotions and recruit external supports to help us in the effort and for speaking with us today. Thanks, Rob. It was really great.